Today's scripture reading comes to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, through chapter 2, verses 4, and can be found in your pew Bible on page, uh, page 1. <laughs> in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, 
and over all the wild animals of the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The word of the Lord. If you would, please join with me now in prayer. Almighty God, fill us with your spirit. Open our hearts and our minds so that through your word read and proclaimed, we might hear the word we need to hear from you this day. Amen. Well, please don't judge me for the story I'm about to tell you. It wasn't my fault, I promise. I can't remember precisely where I was at the barber shop or the dentist's office or some other waiting room where television was blaring and I couldn't turn it off. Wherever it was, I watched an episode of Judge Judy. (laughs) I tried so hard not to watch it, but it kept inviting me in. I couldn't resist the televised and flashy courtroom, blending reality, entertainment, and some form of justice. Well, the plaintiff on this episode was also the aunt of the defendant. (laughs) The defendant was a young man who had just passed his 18th birthday. I had missed the lead-in as to why they were in court together and why they had changed their, their natural family relationship with this legal relationship. What I can tell you, though, is what remains lodged in my memory. At one point, the plaintiff aunt turned to her nephew, looked at him with disdain, and said coldly, He came out wrong. The boy was born no good. He's never been any good his whole life long. Now the show continued on, but I remained stuck there in that moment. I have no doubt that that young man was difficult, that he had perhaps injured his aunt in some unacceptable way. But was he really no good? Had he really never been good? And is that the way God viewed that young man? And what would justice look like for someone who has been told that they are no good since the time they learned to walk? 
You see, we preacher types really shouldn't be allowed to watch Judge Judy. <laughs> the trouble is that it's not just on Judge Judy that we encounter such ideas about our fellow creatures. Throughout much of our society and our American understanding of the world, there are good people and there are bad people. And for the most part, fortunately, the good people act like I act and even vote how I vote. It's amazing. But the bad people, they, of course, don't do things the way that they should be done. Regrettably, even our Presbyterian tradition has at times in its history devoted too much attention to emphasizing the bad in people. Do you remember that old Calvinist teaching that stresses the total depravity of human beings? At its best, that doctrine helps us confess that even our most noble actions and motivations are tainted by sin and therefore, it encourages us to acknowledge more fully the grace that we find in Jesus Christ. But at its worst, that doctrine of total depravity can become a bludgeoning club used to tell people that they are sinful to the core and they are just plain down no good. But is that how God sees the world? The first chapter of Genesis seems to tell a different story. It invites us to grow in our thinking to imagine how God understands all that is. We are given a narrative window that looks out on a view of God setting the cosmos into motion. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. A wind from God swept over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then God speaks into being a separation of earth and sky and calls forth land from the ocean and tells the land to produce vegetation with fruit and seed. Of course, it is so. And God sees it again and sees that it is good. And God doesn't stop. God calls forth the sun and the moon and the stars and then again pauses to look. God sees that they are good. And then on the fifth day, in the start of the sixth day, God declares, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the dome of the sky and let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind. And now I've got to be honest, the next part is absolutely my favorite. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind and every creeping thing that creeps upon the face of the earth. Again, God sees them and sees that they are good. One of my own great loves is kayaking. And a few years ago, I actually talked my way into what I like to call my hobby job. About once a week, I get to take tourists and locals out in kayaks on Shem Creek and paddle them around and tell them about the salt marsh and the tides and the winged birds and the creatures swarming beneath the murky waters of the Charleston Harbor. And somebody pays me to do it. It is really fantastic. Well, word got out about my hobby job, and our presbytery's good friend and staff person, Pi Michael, soon asked me to lead a workshop at our annual STEPS conference. It involved taking participants out in kayaks and reflecting on our faith and how nature can inform and inspire our spiritual lives. So on the day of that event, I loaded up a group of 12 or so into the church bus, 
drove them to Shem Creek, plopped them all into kayaks. And then I took those Presbyterians way, way back into the waters of the marsh, way back into the grasses. And I had them hold fast to one another's boats. We would stay together. And there we sat in what can only be described as relative quiet, because if you've spent much time in the marsh, you know it is full of lovely noises. And there, as we held on to one another's boats, we read these very verses of Genesis. It brought new vibrancy to these scriptures, to hear these words as we felt the wind sweeping over the face of the waters, and as we watched the Spartina cord grass bend and bob with every gust of wind, and as we heard the flap of winged birds and sensed the incessant motion of crabs and snails creeping upon the face of the earth. And there, deep in the marsh, even we, a group of totally depraved Presbyterians, could appreciate more fully that creation is good. Well, I love the first chapter of Genesis. Again and again, it proclaims that God pauses sees what has been created, and declares it to be good. It is a beautiful start to the Bible. It gets even more remarkable on the sixth day of creation. After creating all the animals, God speaks again. Let us make human beings in our image, according to our likeness. So God created humankind in God's own image. Male and female, God created them. Human beings are created. People are called into existence, both male and female, and they're called forth just like all the other elements of God's grand masterpiece. Yet we are also called forth uniquely. We alone in all the heavens and all the earth are created in the very image of God. Have you ever considered that? It's actually fairly astounding, the image of God. The famed Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann points out that we are prohibited in the Ten Commandments and elsewhere from fashioning any images of God in the physical world. Idolatry, you see, is a perilous temptation, and we are unquestioningly commanded to avoid it. The origins of idolatry seem to be in creating things that could be likened to God and thereby substituted for God. And so we are not to fashion anything in the image of God. And yet human beings, as individuals and as a whole, have somehow been created by God in God's own image. According to Brueggemann, the only part of creation that discloses something to us about the reality of God is humanity. Somehow, he continues, in the realm of free history where power is received, decisions are made, and commitments are honored, God is imaged in the freedom of human persons to be faithful and gracious. God is imaged in the freedom of human persons to be faithful and gracious. You see, we have the capacity through the ways we treat one another and the ways we treat this earth to make God known. We have the potential and the responsibility to bear God's image into the world. This is an awesome affirmation of the worth and the intention of every human being. So was that young man on Judge Judy just born no good, a bad apple? Was there something wrong in his very nature? 
I don't believe that the opening chapters of Genesis would support saddling such a label on any part of God's good creation. When God finished creating on the sixth day, God saw all that God had made, and indeed, it was very good. Did you catch that when we were reading the scripture earlier? When God steps back and looks on the whole of creation with stars and plants and peoples, the Hebrew text declares it not to just be tov, good, the word it's been using all along, but all of a sudden it shifts and says it is tov me'od, it is very good. The creation, complete with the human beings that carry God's image with them, is very good. And it is so good, in fact, that God takes the whole next day to rest. Now, if you're like me and you have a little bit of an overactive imagination, you may not have the most helpful image of what God's rest might look like. I tend to always picture God as a farmer who has wandered off under a tree somewhere and laid down in the shade and tipped his straw hat over his eyes and put his feet up and taking a nap. Fortunately, however, the Bible paints a different image. The grammar and vocabulary um, help us understand a different idea of God's rest, even if it is a little bit lost in our English translation. Far from being sleepy and slipping away, the rest of God is actually made manifest through God's presence with and enjoyment of creation. God ceases creating on the seventh day so that God can relish in the goodness and the completeness of what has been made. God's rest is the definition and the gold standard of Sabbath. I wanted to slow down and highlight God's engagement and enjoyment of creation because I think it offers a word of hope to that young man on Judge Judy and to you and to me. We don't have to look far to become painfully aware of the brokenness and the sin in our world. All around us, we experience people who are hurting, who are injured, who may even be abusing themselves or other people. We ourselves fail to reflect the image of God with much consistency or clarity. Too often, we lose hope, and we can start to wonder if God has abandoned us and left, us lone, left this lonely world to spin on its own. But the Bible calls us to faith. It proclaims to us without reservation that God both delights in creation and stays ever close to it. The unfolding narratives in both the Old and the New Testament point again and again to a God that respectfully and lovingly holds fast to a creation and to people that have the freedom and even the tendency to respond to God with ambivalence and self-determination. Though people turn away from God, God clings to them with resolve, even to the point of anguish. We human beings can be pretty bad. We may say and do terrible things. We may abuse the goodness of God's creation. We may mistreat it and mistreat one another. We may have distorted the, and disfigured the image of God within ourselves until it is unrecognizable. But none of us, and I mean none of us, is beyond God's desire and God's ability to redeem. Just as God called creation into being out of nothing, the Bible teaches that God calls to all of us now. 
God calls into every one of our circumstances, into every dead end and every self-destructive decision we make, God calls to us and invites us to be adopted into the household of faith. We're invited to become part of the very body of Christ. And in Christ, no matter how far we've gone, we are promised a way back to the beginning, a way back to being part of a very good creation, a way back to bearing the very image of God into the world. In the closing chapters of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, a vision is shared with the Apostle John. It is a vision of God's ultimate and final intention for creation. Hear these words now, these words of promise and hope that emerge out of that vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, The home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God, who was there at the beginning, setting the stars in their courses and calling forth plants and animals and people, will also be there at the end, at the destination of creation. God will be there still, redeeming that which has gone astray, that which has failed, making all things new again. This is our Christian hope and our faith, that God can use even us to demonstrate to the world God's gracious and redemptive work. Even now, we are charged with the responsibility of bearing God's image into the world and making Christ known. We are charged with proclaiming God's love and involvement in the world until that great day when Christ returns to make all things new. Inspired by the Spirit, may we persevere with courage and hope as we emulate God in loving this very good world. Amen.